just put out the new animated series on the resurrection of Jesus and already there is an atheist response on YouTube that is coming up on uh, uh, well over 14,000 views and it's been on just over 24 hours. Wow. So it's already garnering some response. Good. Um, That's wonderful. Now, the man who has responded goes by Paul Logia. Apparently, his name is Paul. I, I think he's from Canada when we look at his YouTube channel. And he claims to be a former Christian who was even involved in youth ministry and went to Bible school, but who began to research the age of dinosaurs, how long ago they were on the earth, and that led to an unraveling of his faith. And he began to read, he, he began to read atheist material and look at some people that we're familiar with online, and then look at young earth creationism sites, and the, the atheist material made them look silly. Hmm. This caused him to join the ranks, apparently, of the atheists, and is now debating against Christianity. Mostly, he deals with Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, Kent Hovind, Eric Hovind, and Young Earth. That's his main interest. Yes. I thought it was remarkable that apparently, as an adult Christian, he first became familiar with the fact that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago and that this was news to him. And that shocked me because, Kevin, as a, as a boy, I loved dinosaurs and obviously knew that they had lived millions and millions of years ago. And it's, it says something about this gentleman's education that he was never exposed to that fact until he was an adult Christian. He says he'd been a Christian for 30 years and never heard that dinosaurs lived millions of, of years ago. So that when he learned that, this really shook him to the core in his faith. And I just can't imagine what sort of high school this fellow must have gone to to be innocent of that fact, at least to have heard of it. Mm. And he further says, if you listen to uh, clips of his testimony, that he said, I was too busy yeah, to yeah. ever investigate any of this for myself. I just believed it. I believed that those who were over me in leadership, I guess pastors, teachers, I took their word for it. Apparently they had investigated it and I could trust them. But he said, I was just too busy with family and, 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 and church ministry and church responsibilities to ever investigate it for myself. Yeah, incredible. Well, you know, that's one of the things that we want to prevent through reasonable faith yes. uh, and uh, encourage young people to investigate these things, in particular before they go uh, to college or university or when they run into Internet infidel-type material on, on the Internet. Did that strike you as that's what he was saying? Just oh, from... absolutely. I, I was stunned to think that he was so involved in church work and other responsibilities that he had no time for personal study. And that's an indictment of the church as well as, as of him, um, that the intellectual life of this person was just allowed well, it was, it was stagnant. It was, 
he, he was had a brain dead Christian faith, and that is an inherently unstable and precarious faith. Yes. Well, we can play some clips from this. He does his own animation. <laughs> yes, and I, and I thought it was very yeah. interesting, Kevin, that in the animation, he doesn't appear on screen himself. Rather, he does a voiceover for a rather millennial-looking young fellow who speaks for him, uh, when in fact we're dealing here with a man who is a middle-aged fellow, was a Christian 30 years, uh, and walked away from the faith. So we're talking about a Christian layperson that's uh, in his middle age, uh, and not this young millennial type that is portrayed on the screen. But this is an effective way of, of reaching out to the younger generation. I have to say that this is the second person that I've run into just looking at things online who didn't discover Christian philosophy and apologetics until after they deconverted, yes. uh, in a sense, uh, and for the most part, and now find themselves in this new commitment, in this new worldview, joining the ranks of those who are critiquing and opposing Christianity, and now are looking at all the material yes. yeah. that uh, gives evidence for Christ. Yeah. So he seems to fit in that category. And Bill, what we can do is you just tell me when to pause this all video, right. and we'll take a look at what he has to say. Okay. This video is too long for the podcast, so let's just deal with his critique of the empty tomb All right. at the beginning of the Reasonable Faith video. Dr. William Lane Craig is well known among modern Christian apologist circles and has debated many high-profile skeptics like Lawrence Krauss, Sam Harris, Sean Carroll, Richard Dawkins, and the late Christopher Hitchens. With such credentials, when his Reasonable Faith Ministry posted a video series called Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? My hopes were high for some quality scholarship and arguments. Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? As we explore this question, we need to address two further questions. What are the facts that require explanation? And which explanation best accounts for these facts? That's one way to look at it. There are three main facts that need to be explained. Fact number one. The discovery that Jesus' tomb was empty is reported in no less than six independent sources. Let's take a look at the first one Craig put on screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5. It says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Forgive me, but where did these verses attest to an empty tomb? The word tomb doesn't appear at all. It says Jesus was buried, but that phrasing can apply equally to burial in a marked grave, an unmarked grave, or even a mass grave, the kind that nearly all Roman crucifixion victims are thrown into, as it can any kind of tomb. The passage is entirely silent on the kind of burial. This passage attests to a resurrection, but it absolutely does not attest to a tomb of any kind, full or empty. So we're down to five alleged independent sources. Now let's look at the Acts passage. The critique here shows that he is unfamiliar with my published work, which undergirds the video, and which this video presents in a summary fashion. The point here is that Paul is quoting from an extremely early uh, tradition that goes back to within the first five years after Jesus' death. And the um, two lines of the formula that he was buried and he was raised, could only have been understood by a first century Jew to imply that the physical body that was in the grave was no longer there, that it, it was now an empty grave. 
for first century Jews, the resurrection is not some sort of spiritual event. It is the raising up of the corpse that was laid in the grave. Now, the question arises then, is this the same event that is described in the Gospels as the discovery of the empty tomb? And the way in which uh, we can see that that is the case is by comparing Paul's four-line formula to the gospel accounts, on the one hand, the passion story of Jesus, and then to the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, the early apostolic preaching. And what you discover is that what Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15 in this formula is a summary, point for point, of the gospel narratives on the one hand and the apostolic preaching on the other, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared to various individuals and groups. What corresponds to the second line is the burial by Joseph of Arimathea in the tomb. What corresponds to the third line, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, is the story of the women's discovery of the empty tomb. So what we have here is extremely early evidence for the burial and the empty tomb of Jesus. It is a summary of the early uh, Christian proclamation of the resurrection, and the third line of the formula corresponds to the story of the discovery of the empty tomb. So that I think it is uh, highly probable that what we have here is a summary and outline form of the principal events of Jesus' passion, his death, his burial by Joseph in the tomb, the discovery of his empty tomb, and then his post-mortem appearances. Okay, continuing the video. Now let's look at the Acts passage. Well, at least this one has the word tomb in it, but it speaks only of David's tomb. That's from a thousand or so years before Jesus. It says Jesus didn't decay, and again affirms a resurrection, but, again, literally nothing at all about a tomb for Jesus, full or empty. And even if it had mentioned an empty tomb, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are supposed to have been written by the same author, one the sequel of the other as a match set. They certainly wouldn't be considered independent sources. Now, there are two points to be made here. First, in the apostolic preaching, I think it's very clear that there is a contrast drawn by Peter between the tomb of David and the tomb of Jesus. He says, David died, he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But this Jesus, God raised up. And I think that that is an indication of the empty tomb. In contrast to the tomb of David, which remains to this day, Jesus' body is not to be found. He was raised up. And as I say, any first century Jew would have understood that to mean that that tomb would have been empty. Now, is this an independent source from the traditions in the Gospel of Luke? Yes, and the argument here is not that the book of Acts is independent from the Gospel of Luke, but rather that in writing the book of Acts, Luke drew upon the traditions of the early apostolic preaching. And so what we have here is a pre-Lucan source, namely the early apostolic preaching upon which Luke drew 
in writing the book of Acts. And therefore, it is an independent source. It's one of Luke's sources. And this apostolic preaching is arguably extremely early. Uh, and that's important because it mitigates against the notion that these are later legends that built up over the decades and eventually got written down in the New Testament. Uh, with the apostolic preaching, we're in touch with what these earliest preachers of the gospel had to say. And Bill, when it comes to the ancient world, this is the, the kind of things that historians look for as far as sources. Well, is that what not you're only the ancient world, but I mean, this is the way historians operate, is mm -hmm. that you try to see if you have independent sources of some event, because as explained later, when you have two independent accounts that tell the same event, that increases the probability that this is actually historical rather than just independently made up. Okay, continuing. Speaking of independent sources, it is near universally acknowledged that Mark was a source for Matthew and Luke. Over 90% of Mark appears in these other books, very often word-for-word -word copying if you examine the original Greek. They are so similar that they're collectively called the Synoptic Gospels. These can no more be considered independent sources than a Harry Potter book, Harry Potter movie, and Harry Potter video game could be considered independent sources for the existence of Hogwarts School of Magic. The movie and the video game are obviously adaptations of the original book, so are useless to corroborate it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke aren't independent sources by any reasonable definition. Now here we see again his misunderstanding of New Testament scholarship, as well as his unfamiliarity with the published material that the video summarizes. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not independent of one another, but there are sources upon which these evangelists drew in writing their Gospels that are independent of one another. Just to give one example, in addition to Mark's Gospel, Luke and Matthew seem to share an independent source that scholars refer to as Q, uh, and this seems to have been a sayings source of Jesus' teachings. It wasn't a record of historical events like the Gospels, but rather it was a record of Jesus' teachings or sayings. And this seems to have been employed by Matthew and Luke um, to supplement uh, what they learned from Mark. Moreover, these authors had other independent sources. There is material in Luke which is unique to his Gospel, which scholars designate the L material. There is material in Matthew, like his guard at the tomb story, which is unique to Matthew and therefore cannot have been derived from Mark, which is part of the M material. And then Mark himself draws upon a pre-Markan passion story for his account of the final week of Jesus' death. And this pre-Markan passion story is one of the earliest sources uh, behind the New Testament, comparable to the tradition that Paul hands on in 1 Corinthians 15. So our critic here is simply unfamiliar with the way New Testament criticism operates. We do indeed have independent sources in L, M, and the pre-Mark and Passion story for the empty tomb of Jesus. And this is one of the most remarkable things about the empty tomb is that it is so widely attested in these very early independent sources about the burial and, and empty tomb of Jesus. 
And Bill, all that about Harry Potter, that's a meme. That gets passed around a lot. Uh, Somebody put that on a website somewhere and constantly in chat rooms and on Facebook, that's thrown against the Christian faith saying that uh, the Bible's no more evidence for Jesus than the Harry Potter series and video games are evidence for the school of Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. You know? And that, that's question-begging because he's chosen deliberately an example which everybody knows to be fiction. So it's and a that's begging genre. the question yeah, it's, against the Gospels. Yeah. Are the Gospels fiction? And he needs to deal with the fact that in the Gospels we do have these independent historical sources attesting to certain facts which have led most scholars to think that these are indeed historical. They try to use it as an illustration, but they also try to use it as a fictional character and then beg the question that... Yeah, it begs the question. It assumes that Jesus is comparable, a fictional character, or these are fictional stories. Okay, let's continue with the video. Which leaves the Gospel attributed to John. While some scholars make a compelling case that the author of John utilized the copy of Mark as a guide, For the sake of moving on, let's grant this one under protest and call Craig's six sources actually two sources. The wide majority of scholars think that John is independent of the synoptics. I'm not aware of any compelling case that John knew Mark. Now, it's certainly conceivable, um, and uh, then one would need to appeal to the traditions behind John, which are not drawn from Mark. There's a lot of material in John about the resurrection of Jesus that isn't drawn from Mark, and uh, so one would need to consider that as well. Okay. Two theological sources that obviously derive from familiar oral tradition. What we have here is the first of many details to be accepted entirely on the basis of, or the Bible tells me so. Let's stop there. That's an assertion that shows a complete misunderstanding of what historical scholarship is about. When historical scholars investigate Jesus of Nazareth, they are not treating the Bible as some inspired, inerrant document. The Bible tells me so. They are treating these documents that were later collected into the New Testament as they would treat any other sources for ancient history. For example, sources concerning the life of Julius Caesar or the life of Alexander the Great. And they're asking the question of Jesus of Nazareth, the very same question they would ask of Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. Did Caesar really cross the Rubicon to attack Rome? Did Alexander actually carry out this and that campaign in his uh, military excursions? These are not examples of the Bible tells me so, and the fact that this gentleman apparently thinks that's the way New Testament scholarship operates is evidence, Kevin, of his complete lack of understanding of of how New Testament historians uh, approach their subject. Well, throughout this video, you're going to hear that little musical passage, for the Bible tells me so, for the Bible tells me so. Very unfortunate. All right, Bill, let's pick it up right there next time. And we want to remind everyone to go to reasonablefaith.org and be sure that you're familiar with all the resources that are there. As well, you can make a donation to this ministry, and we certainly appreciate it when you do. Go to reasonablefaith.org, and we'll continue this discussion next time on Reasonable Faith with Dr. William Lane Craig. you got to cross your Rubicon. you got to cross your Rubicon.